So if uh, you've been following along, this is, um, this is the moment in the book of Hebrews where there's kind of the, the climax of the story. And so it feels appropriate today that it's such a kind of dramatic service, I think, with the, the music that all of the sermon or all the sermons that we've heard so far and all the passages have been kind of leading to this moment. In fact, if you've ever um, talked to me before, you probably uh, will, it'll probably come as no surprise to you that this section of the book of Hebrews makes me think of something that's really common in Broadway musicals. It's um, what musical theater historians call the 11 o'clock number. It's the big song right before the final scene when then uh, comes from the, the time whenever Broadway musicals would start at 8.30 in the 1950s, and this number would have occurred around uh, 11 o'clock. Often the main character tells us what they've learned or states the theme of the show. Um, in My Fair Lady, it's the song I've grown accustomed to her face. In Wicked, it's changed for good. In Hamilton, it's probably the duel between Burr and Hamilton. It's the moment that the whole musical has been leading towards. What needs to be said has been said uh, and is said in the scene. And there's often a little scene afterwards that usually uh, lets the audience catch, catch their breath and wraps up the, the story. Um, but the point of the show or the musical is usually in the 11 o'clock number. Um, just very quickly, the structure is also common in other popular forms of entertainment. I saw Ralph was uh, wearing a Captain America costume in um, uh, action movies, uh, I'm told. The moment usually involves a uh, climactic battle at the end of the movie. I'm probably one of the dozen men in America and maybe even the world who haven't seen Mar uh, Marvel Avengers Endgame. But I gather from a lot of uh, internet memes that I've seen that there's this moment where there's some big field or something and all the good guys appear and they fight with the bad guys. It's parodied a lot. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Thanos, I think, is the bad guy. Snap, anyway. So, um, yeah, so th this is a moment like that in that story in the Book of Hebrews. The writer is pulling out all the rhetorical fireworks and painting two striking images of two mountains. The first is something like Mount Doom in the Lord of the Rings series. It's Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where Moses received the law of God. We heard um, the Hebrews version of the scene described today in the readings, but um, it's also, it's originally described in Exodus 19. So just listen along uh, with this narration and imagine um, that you are a group of people that have been in slavery for a long time. And finally, this leader that may, may be one of your people, but he seems pretty Egyptian. He's got an Egyptian name. He's pulled you out. There's been some miracles. There's been water splitting and other things. But now you've come to this mountain and it gets really dark. And there's a sound from the mountain of a trumpet blast. And you don't know where that's coming from. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast and everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. The other mountain in this passage in Hebrews is something more like John's picture of heaven in the book of Revelation. The author describes it as Mount Zion, which is a real mountain, but also a figure of the heavenly Jerusalem in, in um, the New Testament. It describes it as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem. You all have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, but this is the climatic scene, as I've said, and the nature of the sermon series is that we're encountering this book in little 20 or 30 minute segments like a television series. So let's take a cue from television and review what happened previously on the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, the author began way, way back in chapter one by reminding us that Jesus is better than the angels, is better than Moses, is better than Abraham, is better than the whole Old Testament approach to God. The original hearers of this letter were likely part of a church that was starting to disintegrate. Life was getting hard as the persecution of the Jewish people, including those who had become Christians, was increasing. The author acknowledges that the people in the church have suffered before. He writes, or she writes, whoever writes, uh, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side by those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So they've experienced persecution in the past and it seems like it started again. The people in this church couldn't uh, leave the faith to become rich or Roman citizens. They didn't have that opportunity, but they could at least go back to the old support system in Judaism. And as they looked around and saw the, the troubles that they were facing, some might've even wondered if the suffering they were experiencing was actually deserved. Was this shift to Christianity, with it shift away from the Old Testament law, the reason that God was mad at them? Was God punishing them for disloyalty to his commands? The author assures them that this is not the case. They're, reminding, they're reminded in chapter 11 of all the heroes of the Old Testament who had to suffer and keep the faith through trials. And they're told, as we uh, learned in chapter, the early part of chapter 12, that God sometimes uses suffering to train his children. And they are warned that falling away will lead to judgment. Abandoning Christianity is not the way to please God, but will in fact incur his wrath. What they have left, um, what they have left was not comfortable and blessings from God, but a fiery volcano and a holy law that demanded that the least infraction be punished by stoning. But they are reminded that the God of wrath and judgment who descended to Mount Sinai is the same God who lives on Mount Zion. He welcomes his people into the assembly of thousands of angels in joyful assembly, but he remains who he is. And if the church who received this letter turns away from the assembly and breaks the covenant, they are in danger of being destroyed by a heavenly judgment worse than anything that they are suffering. But if they remain faithful, they will be vindicated and those who are persecuting them will be destroyed for God is preparing to shake and destroy all those who are opposed to him. A little less than 600 years before the book of Hebrews was written, a prophet named Haggai stood among the ruins of the temple. Um, about 70 years before this scene of Haggai standing in the ruins, the Babylonians had come and destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. And, the, and that was really a big deal because the people of Israel had believed that whatever else might happen, Jerusalem could never fall because the temple of the Lord was there. And in the temple of the Lord was the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought in the Ark of the Covenant was God. When King David had tried to bring the Ark into Jerusalem, a man named Uzzah had been consumed by fire because he touched the Ark to prevent it from falling off a cart that was carrying it. 
If the presence of God is so physically located in a particular geographical space, it would make sense that the people of the city that holds that space would have some confidence that it could never be conquered. But the prophet Ezekiel had watched the spirit of God left the temple and then the city and King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed it. And so in about 520 BC, the prophet Haggai was part of a group of uh, people coming back from exile, uh, back to the land that they had been forced from, uh, was told to give this message to the governor of the city, uh, Zerubbabel, and the high priest Joshua. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory, he says. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jodak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came up out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry lands. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The shaking that Haggai is told about is a promise that the enemies of Israel will be shaken down, that all their wealth will be given to Israel for the rebuilding of the temple. The author of Hebrews seems to have in mind an even more destructive shaking and connects the shaking of the voice of God that caused the earth to shake and Moses to tremble with fear. Um, but the end result will be the same for God's people. A new kingdom, a new temple made up of what remains after God's purification will be established. And those who remain faithful to him will inherit the riches of this internal kingdom shaken out of the rest of the world. The author tells us our God is a consuming fire. The translators of the New International Version of the Bible tell us in a footnote that the author is quoting Deuteronomy 4, in which Moses tells the people, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord uh, that the Lord your God made with you. And do not make yourselves an idol in the form of anything God has forbidden, for the Lord is a consuming fire, a jealous, jealous God. So that's what the NIV uh, writers think that, or translators think that he's quoting. I actually suspect that he also might have had in mind a place a bit later in Moses' speech when he reminds the people as they are about to conquer the promised land, be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. The key biblical truth for the first hearers of this text is likely something like remain faithful to Jesus because his is the winning side. And maybe some of us need to hear that message today. Maybe even all of us do, but I, I stumble a little bit over this when I, it says where, uh, where we went, where we end up. If the universe is ruled by a God who destroys his enemies with fire, it's probably shrewd to be on his good side but then how do we reconcile this with the story of a God who sent his own son, a son who was somehow also God himself to suffer the wrath reserved for the enemies of God so that those very enemies of God could, reserve, could join the spirits of the righteous made perfect. One of the things I've learned over the years in uh, studying scripture is that there's often different um, ways to approach a text. 
uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, the, and actually the very early Middle Ages, it's still even called the patristic period, so still the time of the church fathers, so to speak, they, they developed an approach called the fourfold typology. I'm not going to get into this too much. Uh, you can talk to me about it later if you're interested in it. But um, the, the four, they, they said there's kind of four different ways to read particularly Old Testament scripture. The first way is to read it literally, see what it's saying on the, on the surface and what it probably meant to the original readers. And that's what I just did. I think that's what the original readers probably were supposed to get out of this text. But then the, these medieval theologians went on and said you can read it morally, try to figure out what you're supposed to learn for it and apply it to your own life. You can read it allegorically. What does it say about Jesus and what does it say about God? And then finally, and here's a weird word, you can learn about it anagogically, which means what's it saying about the world to come? What, what is it saying about the heaven and where we're going? Um, and there's all sorts of examples of this that I'm actually going to um, skip over. But and it, I, I think the, this fourfold uh, typology does have its limits, and I'm not sure it's always useful for every passage. But usually in sermons, we focus on the literal what does the text say? And then maybe the moral, what does it say for us? And what does it mean that I'm supposed to do this week? But today, having read the, read the literal meeting, I'm going to spend the rest of my time trying to understand what this text tells us about the nature of God, the allegorical and anagogical meaning of this text. Um, it's not actually either ana, uh, allegorical or anagogical in the medieval sense. It's kind of a mixture of both. But I'm interested in what does this text tell us about the nature of God as he's consumed, compared to a consuming fire. We might fear a consuming fire, but why should we love it with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul, as scripture has told us that we should? I'm pretty sure I don't actually have a full answer. Um, all of our worldviews and theologies bump up against some deeply disturbing results if we follow them to their logical conclusions. Um, if we say there's no God, then we're the result of chemical and electrical reactions, and it's pretty hard to establish anything like a transcendent idea of good or evil, or even free will in its truest sense. On the other hand, uh, the mystery of a God of love who creates creatures, some of whom are destined, if even by their own choices, to encounter his fiery wrath when all things are shaken, is part of the challenge that's faced in the Christian worldview. And let's stick with that last one for a moment, because I think many of us are probably most closely aligned to something like it, or at the very least, when we read a text like this, we're comfortable dismissing the idea of God's wrath um, entirely. Why is God described as something like a consuming fire? If God is love, how is he also so judgmental? I've recently been listening to an audiobook um, by Jackie Hill Perry called Holier Than Thou. Um, Jackie Hill Perry is a 34-year-old hip-hop poet and Christian writer from my hometown of St. Louis. Um, and if you read her book, like any human writer, I'm sure there's some things about her teaching that are probably wrong. And I'm sure if Jesus gave a review of the sermon, he'd say the same thing about me. Um, but there's a lot that I find inspiring in her writing. And she's actually, she's a very beautiful writer. She has a real uh, gift of language. And one of the things I found compelling in this book is her reminder that God is a being who is absolutely and unchangeably good and that this cannot be compromised, nor would we want it to. So when we meet a human being, a fellow human being, we often, you know, we, we give our friends and our acquaintances and even people we're not so happy about uh, or with all sorts of allowances for their shared weaknesses. We know that we're weak and imperfect, and they are too. And we know that no one is completely perfect, and we don't expect them to be. We do expect, however, that there is something that is good, some absolute good. And we're told in scripture that God is this absolute version of good. 
In fact, it doesn't make any sense to talk about God being any sort of less than good or, or compromised good, because then the very definition of good is changed, and it's then whatever that is. So, the, so God is absolute, absolute good. He's also absolute love, such that the Apostle uh, John says that God is love. If we want to know what love is, we should seek after God. So God, who is this absolute version of love and good, cannot be polluted. This is what part of what we mean, I think, when we say that God is holy. Uh, many of you know, and I think some of the prayers even sort of alluded to this today, that the word holy is the word for separated out or, or pulled apart from. It's also the word that we see in scripture for saints, um, or it's related to the words for saints. So when we hear about the, to the saints in Ephesus, it's talking to the holy in Ephesus. Um, so God is separated from all that can be corrupted. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, though, the earth, the Bible tells us, has been corrupted. God tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And when Cain killed Abel, God says, the, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground, and now you are under curse and driven from the ground, which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And yet, and, and for all the ways that modern humans have polluted the earth, in various ways, the sin of humankind has polluted it on a more essential spiritual level. But in the early moments of creation, God said that the earth was good. And beneath all the pollution that humans have poured on the earth is something essentially good. For centuries before the birth of Christ, humans knew that one way to separate dirt from the other, uh, sorry, uh, separate dirt and impurities from valuable metals like gold was to heat a mixture really, really hot until the impurities either burnt off or else rose to the top and you could skim off the, the bad stuff and leave the gold. When, human, when God interacts with the humans in the Old Testament, there seems to be a similar process that happens. So when Moses encounters God for the first time, God appears to him in a bush that was burning, but not consumed. God tells Moses, take off your shoes before he approaches because the ground is holy. And I sort of wonder if God had somehow burnt off all that was spiritually impure in the area before his presence entered the space where Moses was. Um, the bush itself was not consumed because it was still essentially good. And that patch of ground, at least for a, a period of time, was returned to the state of earth that it enjoyed in Eden. I mentioned the story of Uzzah earlier. In the book of 2 Samuel, we read about how King David decided to move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. In the book of Exodus, God had instructed that the ark be carried by priests on long poles on their shoulders. Uh, but those transporting the ark uh, in 2 Samuel put the cart on, um, with the ark on, it, uh, on a cart pulled by oxen. The oxen stumbled and it looked like the ark might fall off the cart. And Uzzah reached out and placed his hand on the ark to steady it. And we read, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. Jackie Hill Perry writes, Maybe he thought he was holy enough to touch something he shouldn't. Maybe the ark, having, re having resided in his father's home for two decades, had become too common, an ornament of sorts. In any event, his loss of awe, paired with his failure to do as God had prescribed, necessitated God's ju justice. As R.C. Sproul once observed, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it seems unfair, doesn't it? 
in Bible Bowl I, uh, in high school, I, we studied Second Samuel in this passage. I learned it really well, and it bothered me a lot. Um, but if God is to interact with corrupted humans, there is the risk that the absolute holiness of God will burn off the dross that approaches it. I think I live most, most of my life overestimating my own abilities. Although, as I said, I don't actually watch a lot of action movies, I do sometimes mistake myself for being just maybe a little bit less skilled than an action hero. If I read about a shipwreck, I imagine myself treading water in the ocean until a lifeboat arrives. Um, or if I think about a fire in a building, I sometimes imagine myself climbing down the side of the building to safety. If I think about good and evil, I think of myself, I confess, as maybe not perfect, but at least pretty good. But I stand before the ocean, or I look down from a skyscraper, or even on those rare occasions when I sense something like the presence of God, and I think, yeah, there's no way. I realize how completely insufficient I am. I couldn't tread water on a choppy ocean for very long with waves that are sometimes many, many, many feet high, or climb down the side of a burning building. No human could. Likewise, my own estimation of my own goodness is wildly inflated. This is, I think, part of what causes the people in the Bible to fall on their faces one dead when they even encounter a being as righteous as an angel. When Isaiah has his vision of the Lord and the temple in the year that King Uzziah dies, he writes, above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory, have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The intense and existential insufficiency we feel in the presence of the absolute is, I think, part of the fear of the Lord. It's not that God is a tyrant ready to scream, off with your head. It's that we feel the offense of our own head so intensely that we wish it could be torn off. But and this is where the good news of this passage can be found. There is another way, and now the only way, for humans to interact with God. We have not come to a mountain that can be touched, says the author of Hebrews. I mean, the mountain in Exodus was a mountain that could be touched, and you might get burnt up or stoned to death, but it was at least a geographical feature that you could touch. But instead, God has invited us into the heavenly Jerusalem by the blood of Jesus Christ, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel. In Genesis, the creation was called good, and the creation of human beings very good. And if creation has been thickly polluted by our sin, there remains underneath all of the gunk and filth something that is good, very good, good in the image of God, good. And instead of blasting out the ground around a bush with flames that burnt off all the good parts, uh, God entered the world through a virgin's womb. And in this interaction with the earth, God himself took on flesh that was once very good and made it good again. And somehow when this absolutely good human flesh touched corrupted flesh, the corruption was burnt away and the flesh itself remained. The skin of lepers was made clean. A woman with internal bleeding was healed just by touching the hem of the robe. And when even the polluted dust of the earth um, was uh, shaped 
uh, and even the polluted dust of the earth, which back in Genesis in its perfect state was once shaped into human flesh, um, it could once again be made holy ground and used to form again the eyes of a man more, born blind and make him see again. And when Jesus was crucified, his good, very good blood fell to the earth and somehow cleaned the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood cursed to the earth, Jesus' blood calls out to God, Father, forgive them. Gold, I am told, can be refined by liquids like hydrochloric acid, no fire required. Jesus' blood somehow refines us so that we can approach the heavenly Jerusalem without fear, for we are no longer polluted, but are once again very good. On Mount Sinai, God came down to earth, but he had to purify the space first. Hebrews tells us that God has invited us up to heaven, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to God, the judge of all, whose spirits, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to, the, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He invites us up because he has made us very good again. It's not that God has changed, for he who lives outside of time cannot change, but he remains absolutely good, and that can be a terrifying thing. It's just that he has provided a way for us to stand up in his presence. So I don't have a lot of application to offer today. I'd love to have three practical points that I could apply in my own week as a result of this truth of God's terrifying holiness, but I Trust that God will grow the seed of truth into the fruit that he desires in each of our lives this week. If nothing else, I think it's an important tonic for me to remember the truth, to temper so much of what we sing about in worship or read about in contemporary evangelical literature that tells us about the welcoming, comforting love of God. This love is absolutely true, but we need to remember that as the anthropomorphic beaver of Narnia told Lucy in the uh, line, the witch in the wardrobe, the lion is good, but he's not safe. Today's passage ends with a thanksgiving and a warning. It says, therefore, we are, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. But as Jeremiah writes in, Revel in Lamentations, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that is good news.